Hello everyone and welcome to Mike and Amit Talk Tech. We're here talking about generative AI. This is the second episode in a six episode series where we look at the history and the functionality and the benefits and the future of generative AI. And in the last episode, we left off by talking about how the new generation of AI, generative AI, is different from what we've seen in the past with AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero and so forth. And so here we come to, well, let's get right in there. Amit, ChatGPT, what makes it different? Let's let's actually take off right where you left off last time, Mike, just as you said, right? So we spoke about AlphaGo, we spoke about AlphaGo Zero. So we are now at a place, this is what, 2017, 2018 timeline, where we've created systems that are capable of learning by themselves and they can solve these incredible problems like beating Go and evidently they, they also went ahead and beat human players at Texas Hold'em Poker, which is just incredibly, incredibly hard thing to do. Yeah, how can they bluff? Aren't they just doing what we program them to do? Evidently, these systems learned to bluff, these systems learned in many cases to make themselves appear less smart so that the human players on their teams or across from them would actually get fooled or get lulled into complacency. So this is just incredible, right? But there was still one thing these things could not do. So let me tell you folks this in the form of an example, right? So you hear a sentence that says, the server fell down. The server fell down. Now the question is, without me telling you something more, can you be absolutely certain what I'm talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. I could be talking about perhaps being in a restaurant where the person who was serving me fell down. Or I could just be saying, saying, hey, look, I was, uh, I was watching uh, the US Open on TV just the other day, the US Open tennis game, and Alcaraz, while serving, he fell down, the server fell down. Or I could just be saying that, hey, you know, I walked into the IT department at IMD, you know how clumsy I am. I just uh, was flailing all over and the server in the department, I made it physically fall down. The server fell down. It could be any one of those things, right? Without context, it is impossible to actually tell what I mean by the sentence, the server fell down. I'm going for the computer server because I know how uncoordinated you are. This is a little insight between, uh, between us, and the, us and the listeners. There we go. Also, everybody knows I'm much more likely to go to a cricket game than a tennis game anyway, right? Let's call it the traditional AI. You know, the AI that was based on neural networks and backpropagation was brilliant at solving problems where context was not important. You know, when you're playing chess, if you have to make the 21st move in a game, you don't really need to know what happened on the seventh move and the ninth move. You can look at the board right now and decide what comes next. When you're playing Go, right, for move number 37 that we spoke last time, you don't need to know the history of Go. You just say, okay, based on this situation, what comes next? Or if you're optimizing your supply chain, I don't need to know who your CEO was in 1957 who set this up. I need to know, okay, this is the current situation, this is what I need to optimize, and then machine learning can do a brilliant job. But this doesn't work with language, does it? I need to know context. And this is where the breakthrough that Google came out in late 2017 really plays a part. And just like the breakthroughs we talked about last time that Mike mentioned, right? The mathematical breakthroughs in the 60s and 70s, nobody paid attention to this initially. Nobody. People thought, okay, cute stuff, but so what? 
So what? What does this have to do with anything? And what these folks basically did is they introduced a new type of machine learning system, almost, if you will, called a transformer. And this was the, uh, the paper called Attention is All You Need, right? And it was really written by a bunch of Google researchers, right? Which they published. I mean, it was published as open to anyone. And they gave it away for free, technically, right? I mean, that you've got to give them credit for that. So what is a transformer? So let's think about the problem we are solving about, right? We need to somehow figure out a way to give AI context. So if I tell AI the server fell down, the AI then needs to understand that, hey, you know, six sentences previously, I told you I was going to be at Wimbledon. And then it kind of adds two plus two and says, well, probably what this means is that a person playing a game fell down, right? How do you do this? This is an incredibly hard problem. Why? The only thing computers can do is mathematics. They can only do zeros and ones. So what I need to figure out is a way to take my, for example, conversation history and convert that into zeros and ones, which is just absurdly hard. And the way these folks did that, and this is an incredibly brilliant, complicated stuff, but breaking it down, they did two things. Number one, they figured out a way to understand mathematically the relative positions of words. So if I say, I am going to a restaurant, each of those words has a relative position, they figured out mathematically how to understand the relationship between the relative positions. The second thing which the transformer did is through a system that's known as attention and self-attention. They figured out for each word how to give that word context. What do I mean by this? For each word, they created an immensely massive matrix that's attached to the word that links that word to other similar words. Example, lion will be linked to lioness, but it'll also be linked to king and queen, but it'll also be related to cat, and cat will be related to dog, and but lion might also be related to Africa, and it might be related to sustainability and global warming. So you've now all of a sudden got all these contextual factors that kind of link the word lion to all these other words in the English language. And you put these things together and all of a sudden you had an insanely powerful tool which at least immediately after it was launched, very few people really recognized. So if you have ice and rock and cream, you could say ice is kind of linked to rock because ice is a bit like a rock, but it's gonna be closer linked to cream. Right? And this is where we sort of get the prediction, don't we, about the kind of the next words, word or words in a sentence. That is exactly right. And once we had this technology, the world was ready for generative AI. The world was ready for what we now, most of us, use as ChatGPT or Llama or BERT or a bunch of other technologies, right? And the way they actually created these technologies was interesting but also a little mundane. And that's the beauty of this, right? So they took the entire internet up till September 2021, along with a few other databases, and used that as the baseline data. Then they actually recruited 40, 40 human beings. They recruited 40 people to sit down and write question-answer combinations that they fed into the system. 
And in case the readers or the listeners are wondering, the questions themselves are not critical, right? I mean, I can ask you, why is the sky blue, right? I can ask you factual questions saying, tell me more about IMD. What is the history of Switzerland? Factual questions, these people wrote down the answers to these questions pretty much manually. And all we are doing here is classic supervised learning, which by the way, we knew in the 1980s, right? Where you're giving question answer combinations to people, you're labeling that this input corresponds to that output. Whenever I ask you when the sky is blue, this input corresponds to an answer for why the sky is blue. The next step, they got the computer to come up with answers on its own and graded the quality of those answers. And once they did that, the system was ready because it had access to a database, it knew what Q&A looks like, and it could grade itself. And then the only thing left after that was immense amount of GPU power, and we are off and running, and lo and behold, we have ChatGPT. So we have AlphaGo, which is kind of a lot of human input, and then we have AlphaGo Zero, take away the human, but the use cases where AlphaGo Zero are effective are kind of very, very logical ones where things are predictable and language and people are not predictable. So we bring back the people. This is the famous RLHF, which is reinforced learning with human feedback. And what you're talking about there, I mean, is the human feedback is basically humans looking at the answers and saying, you know, that's, a, that's good or it's not good. And... There's some gamification involved, right? So the, the, the model gets points for better answers and that sort of links to the learning. So the answers get better and better and better. And at some point, you know, it can kind of go off on its own. Absolutely. And you know, the funny thing, Mike, ChatGPT has now been out. It's uh, obviously a massive company, probably the hottest company on the planet right now. I visited them about a month ago in San Francisco. They are still very much committed to RLHF. They are still using a lot of human feedback to improve the models, to go from GPT 3.5 to 4.0, and then 5.0 whenever they'll eventually launch it, still has a significant amount of human input, right? So this whole idea of RLHF, reinforcement learning combined with human feedback, is absolutely the bedrock. And it's exactly like Mike said, we're almost come full circle from complete automation to realizing that there's still value for us in the loop. And, and all of us these days, we can contribute and participate in that learning because when we get an answer from uh, GPT, any of the GPT models, in fact, pretty much any of the large language models, there's usually a thumb up or a thumb down that you can click. And you're giving your own input into whether you like the answer or you don't, and that helps the model to learn. And just to kick off on that, right? So what exactly is this model doing? All this training, remember, what have we taught it? We have taught it to kind of complete the sentence. If I ask you, why is the sky blue? How does it rain? There is a set of words that I'm expecting after that that'll kind of make me happy, so to speak. So it just comes up with those words, one word at a time. Technically, it's not even words. Remember, the only thing this can do is numbers. So any input we give it, any prompt that we give it, it converts it to numbers, which are known as tokens. For the sequence of tokens that is the input, it finds the most logical continuation of tokens, which is the answer. It then takes those tokens, converts it back into words or punctuation marks. And that's how it can construct entire sentences and paragraphs and write poems and come up with your next strategy. So if I understand this right, Amit, you know, uh, you mentioned that the GPT 
model was locked in uh, September 2021, right? So it's, it's not the internet. It's searching. It's searching that data set, which is huge, right? It includes a, a lot of stuff. But if you were, if that was a file and you would open that file on the computer, you would just see numbers, right? That's all that's you would it. see, just numbers. That's all you would see. All you'd see are numbers, right? But that's all it really needs. It is just doing a completion of a numerical sequence that you've given it. And that's how it sees it. As a matter of fact, it does not even think in terms of words. It thinks in terms of tokens, which can even be fraction of words. So for example, EST is a token. ING is a token. Rule of thumb is that every four tokens corresponds to about three words. So jumping with a comma would be three tokens, right? You have jump, ing, and then and then the comma. So really, all these models do is like a, a complete the sentence, you know. And I, I guess many of us have used these tools, right, in our uh, you know text messaging or whatever. They're pretty crappy. They're not very good. Autocomplete is not very good. So so how is it that these models just seem to be so much better? I mean, they write better than any of us can write. It just comes out beautifully. How, how is that possible? How is it possible it's so much better than a you know typical it's traditional the, autocomplete? And this is this is one of the things which has freaked people out, right? This is not just computer scientists, but also historians and philosophers, because the input in this model is actually well understood. And like we discussed, it's relatively mundane. But the outcomes from this are simply mind-blowing. So there are two key reasons why it's able to do these kinds of crazy things. First of all, let's understand the input data that this has been given is more than any input data system has been given so far. So all the internet up till 2021 plus several other databases that we know of, for example, GitHub, which allows it to program books. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of books have been fed into it, as well as many other data, you know, picture databases and logo databases and, and, and you know, those kinds of things. That's the first uh, crucial point. The second crucial point to understand is the brute force computing power that is behind this system, right? GPT 3.5, runs on, I believe, several hundred thousand GPUs worth of processing power, which is insane if you think about it. When you consider that today, uh, the price of a single GPU chip, even if you can lay your hands on one of them, is between 10 and 15,000 US dollars, right? And we are talking a few hundred thousand of these chips churning away constantly producing this. So it's a combination of incredible data combined with insane computing power, but let's not forget the power of the transformer that allows all of this to happen. The real genius of this in the middle is the transformer. It's really a combination of three things. If I'm understanding this correctly, Ahmed, you've got, you've got a very elegant system. The transformer is the base of this. It's the bedrock. It's the foundation. You've got relatively simple math. I mean, this is not super complex math, relatively simple math, but at massive scale. And, and when you combine these three things, an elegant model, simple math, and massive scale, what comes out is what we see when we use ChatGPT and other models. And what comes out is absolute magic. But this is what has gotten all the people who are talking saying, okay, is this finally AGI? Is this thing conscious? Does this thing understand? But on the other side, this has also gotten people up in arms saying, okay, exactly how much electricity are we burning every time we ask 
bit to write a silly poem on Amit uh, and his love for cricket or something like that. These are open questions that I think are worth discussing in the future. Uh, we will discuss those on upcoming uh, episodes. Is there anything else, Amit, that you would like to, to say, mention about kind of how these generative AI systems work, kind of the mechanics, the technology, the math behind them you think is relevant? One thing is absolutely crucial to understand. So we've already discussed, Mike, that what it does is essentially based on a input, it probabilistically, it tries to figure out what should come next. It's, it's doing a complete the sentence. It's a really smart autocomplete. But the really cool thing about the system is that it does not automatically always pick the most likely thing that should follow. Sometimes, randomly, it says, let me pick something of lower probability. So when I'm asking it to complete a sentence, let's say it has three options. Option number one has the highest probability. It's the, it's, you see it most often, this particular word as the next word in the sentence. Option number two is relatively low probability, but you still see it. Sometimes it might randomly pick option number two or option number seven, as the case may be. This is two effects. The effect number one is that this makes it interesting, actually. It makes its output interesting rather than uh, you know extremely dull. The second thing this does is, taken to the extreme, this leads to what we call hallucinations. Because if I randomly pick something of low probability, I'm now suddenly branching off on a tangent which might take me down some really strange paths, completely probabilistically. It's not doing this to mess with us or because it knows what it's doing. This is just probability at play. And just probabilistically, we sometimes end up in strange or dark corners of the internet or of the data sets that it has. And this is also extremely worrisome in some applications. It's great in other applications. If, if I'm designing a new logo, what we call hallucinations might actually be creativity. But if I'm looking for an answer or if I'm designing a chatbot for use with an organization, I would prefer not to have any hallucinations, right? So this is something we all need to keep our eyes open for. And, and we know that a lot of these models do have some trouble with just pure factual questions, which is the opposite of the way it used to be, right? It used to be that, uh, that at least we know that the computer system is going to get the facts right. And, and everything else, it'll struggle. It's it's almost switched completely around with these large language models. It is. And you know, I think one of the issues is it kind of looks like a search engine. It kind of works like a search engine because we are very used to search. But this is not a search engine. This is not searching for anything, right? So if you go to it, if you go to Google and ask who is Mike Wade, Google is basically going to pull up Mike Wade's profile, probably from IMD's webpage and throw it out there for you. If you ask ChatGPT who's Mike Wade, it's going to convert that into numbers and going to say, whenever I see who is Mike Wade, what do I see coming up next, probabilistically? And there is zero guarantee that you're going to hear about Mike Wade, the professor at IMD, who is extremely well known for things like digital transformation. You might hear about Mike Wade, a professor at IMD who's famous for digital transformation, but who's also a spy for the MI6 or something like that. So it's it's very hard to predict what you're gonna get you're, out of this. You shouldn't have said that, Amit. That's not, now, <laughs> now, that, now that's out there. No, it's true, and it does get it wrong. It does get it wrong. Ha having said that, it sounds like the Mike Wade that, that it's thinking I am is probably more interesting than the real Mike Wade, so maybe I can, <laughs> I can switch. Yeah. All right, so that was a little bit of a discussion going from, let's call it traditional AI 
onto generative AI, the thing that has all of us in raptures over the last eight months or so. We hope you really enjoyed this. We hope you tune in for our next episode where we try and understand what the landscape around generative AI large language models look like today. This is Amit Joshi with my colleague, Mike Wade. This is Mike and Amit Talk Tech. Thank you very much for joining us. And if you would like more information on this podcast or about IMD, please visit imd.org.